0: By the way, we are coming to the end of our study in the book of Luke. It's not going to happen quickly, obviously, because we're still in Luke 22. But um, where we are now, we are in the final day. Uh, Jesus is going to be apprehended. He's going to be arrested. And by by 9 o'clock the following morning, he's going to be on a cross. By 3 o'clock, he's going to give up the ghost, and it's going to be over. At least that's what they think. But we know better, don't we? Uh, it, it was not over, it's still not over, and it will not be over until he sits on the throne uh, in Jerusalem. But <clears throat> the story that we begin to look at, though, is, is the grim part of the story. I want to say two things to you <clears throat> as we start. The scripture never, ever paints Jesus as a victim. It deals with it factually, it deals with it uh, clearly, but it doesn't dwell on it at all. And we need to understand that, that yes, Jesus went to the cross. Yes, it was agony. Yes, he went through all of it. But he never is portrayed as a victim. He never looked like a victim. He never felt like a victim. He never cried out like a victim. He went willingly through all this. And unlike you and I, we wouldn't really have known what was going on and what we were going to face. He went willingly knowing exactly what it meant and what it was going to cost. And Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know what the joy was? You, saving you, bringing you into relationship with him. I mean, <clears throat> it's easy for us to look at the Bible and look at the crucifixion as being, you know, a <clears throat> something removed from us. Like, but it's very personal, this is a very personal being, the Lord Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, hanging on a cross for you because it's like you're the only one when he did. You know when you pray? He doesn't say, who are you again? He doesn't say, listen, wait in line. When you pray, you get a personal audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're your personal to him. Your sin was personal to him, saving you was personal to him, and he did it because he loved you, right? The second thing I want to say to you is this, the betrayal of Judas is a benchmark in the whole idea of betrayals that have ever happened, and the world's known terrible betrayals, but the betrayal of Judas is a benchmark, uh, it's, it's the most odious, it's the most horrible betrayal of all. And, and we, we're going to look at that today. And, uh, but again, Jesus is not dwelling on it. Judas is going to come kiss Jesus and say, Rabbi, Rabbi. And it's all a front to identify him uh, to the crowd that are behind and ready to take him. And Jesus is going to res- respond with, friend, why have you come? Now, understand this. Somebody can do you a grave wrong. You can't afford to hate them. Jesus didn't hate anybody. And if he had, an, if he had reason to hate someone, if ever a body had reason to hate somebody, Jesus was that person. And he didn't hate that. You can't hate anybody. You can't hate... And the thing is that when you hate, you are overcome of evil. If Jesus had hated Judas as much as Judas obviously hated Jesus, then Jesus would have been just like Judas. But he didn't. And Jesus, therefore, overcame. And what we're, what we're going to look at is a terrible story as, <clears throat> as we go through it and um, as we see the crucifixion and so on. But we need to remember that. He was the ultimate overcomer. He overcame. He never let the, the sin and the wickedness and the low-down meanness of how he was treated bring him to the place where <clears throat> he was less than he was. He rose above it, and he loved in the face of hatred. And while that's impossible, humanly speaking, it's not impossible when God is in the picture. All right, so Luke 22. I'm going to read you two accounts. This uh, <coughs> uh, the, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus is, is is in all four Gospels, right? And they all give you slightly different facets. They all take li- different little uh, elements of it uh, <coughs> and talk to speak to them, things that were, were important for them, things that the Spirit uh, quickened each one of them uh, to actually say. We're, we're looking at Luke, but i want to read you John as well. All right, so Luke 22, verse 47. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And they which were about him saw what would follow they said unto him lord shall we smite with the sword and one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear and jesus answered and said suffer ye thus far and he touched his ear and healed him then jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were uh, come to him uh, by the way they're all there this is a totally illegal thing the judge can't go to the arrest I mean, that's judge, jury, and executioner all in one. They're all there. They're all waiting to catch him. They've paid their money, and now they want to see the sideshow as he is taken. Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And Jesus was tried six times. All of them are illegal. Three times by the Jews three times by the Romans, he stands before the judge, three times with the Jews, three times with the Romans. Every one of them is illegal for different reasons. This is night. He couldn't be taken at night. The, the, um, uh, the, 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 The priests couldn't be there when he was taken. They were going to be his judges. He couldn't be tried at night. But they're going to do this in a hurry. They're going to take him. They're going to try him. Uh, Real quick, they're going to send him to Pilate. Pilate's going to send him to Herod. Herod's going to send him back, and they're going to prevail upon Pilate then uh, to actually crucify him so that by the the next morning, he's on a cross, he's gone, he's done for. And and so there's no semblance of justice involved in this. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for a means. They're looking for a way that they can actually execute him uh, because they've decided long ago, he's gone, he's gone. He is history. All right, so John John chapter 18, 1 to 11. I'll read it to you, right? When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, uh, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If, therefore, ye seek me, let these go their way, that the same might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, and uh, that of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Uh, <clears throat> the servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword <clears throat> into the sheet. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? All right. so... Uh, <clears throat> First of all, a multitude from the temple come to arrest Jesus, right? Um, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. And again, the uh, the real rub of all this is the fact that Judas betrayed him with a kiss. I mean, he could have come in and said, listen, uh, here he is, take him. But he didn't. He came in, and he drew near him to kiss him. Now, <clears> the <throat> point we need to make about this point at this point is that Judas knew where to find Jesus that night. Isn't that interesting? Judas knew where he'd be. He, didn't, he wasn't wondering. He wasn't kind of going scouting around Jerusalem, wondering where he would be. He didn't take them to Bethany to see where, uh, to Mary and Martha, Martha's house. He, he didn't go anywhere else. He knew where Jesus would be. You see, Jesus had a devotional life, and those people that were around him were very aware of it. They were very aware of the fact that Jesus spent time talking to his father. Jesus spent time with the father. And um, I want to ask you a question. Do the people closest to you know that you have a devotional life? Now, it's not a devotional life so the people around you can know you have one. That's hypocrisy. But if you are devoted to the being of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what? People around you should know it. They should see it. They should see something in your life that's different. You see, (coughs) Judas knew where he would find Jesus. He would find him in a garden praying because that's what he often did. He knew he'd be there. You know, the same is true of Daniel. When Daniel's enemies knew that he was going to be made top top dog uh, in Babylon, they, they 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 were very upset. And they decided they had to bring him down somehow. They had to somehow find a way to actually destroy Daniel, to bring Daniel down. And, and when they thought about how to destroy him, they, they, they knew they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything against him. And they said, the only way we're going to get him is if, if, in his dealings with his God. Because they knew that Daniel had a devotional life, that Daniel prayed three times a day. So they concocted a scheme and got the uh, king to sign up to it. And they said, OK, <clears throat> nobody should pray to anybody except you for 30 days. And the king, that's a good idea. I think I, think I like that idea. They should pray to me, because I am uh, top dog. I am <clears throat> God, if you like. So they shouldn't ask anybody uh, of anybody but me. And what did Daniel do to anyone to pray three times a day, as was his habit? And they knew. They knew they would get him. <clears throat> Let me ask you, what's your devotional life like? How regular it is? You say, oh, <clears throat> um, why you ask me that? That's, that's not a fair question to ask me. I'm doing the best I can. Eh? But think about it. There's some disciplines in life that are very helpful to us. Nobody can force them on you. That's just making you conform. But there are disciplines in life that are really helpful to you. And the discipline of you spending time with God on a regular basis is so important in your life. You know, it's, it's so important. Remember Mary and Martha? Mary's in, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha's in the kitchen cooking. Loses the plot, comes in, <clears throat> gives out to Jesus. Why don't you make her help me? I'm, I'm left here to do all the work by myself. What does Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, you're troubled and worried about many things, but one thing is needful, and that's not going to be denied her. But what about the spuds they're, they're burning? What about the rice it's burning? What, what, what about the vegetables they're being, turning into mush? No, one thing is needful. That's being with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, how disciplined is your spiritual life? You know, it's impossible for you and I to abide without spending time with God. <clears throat> it's just impossible. And listen, you don't need to do it for anybody else to conform to what somebody else thinks of you. But you need to do it because you have a relationship with him. You need to spend time with him. You need to develop that habit of life. You know what happens when you don't? Let me tell you what happens, right? <clears throat> uh, your spirit is off, you, you get tetchy. And the enemy's getting a hold of you uh, because your soul is dry. You're starving yourself spiritually. Remember Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. Man, you listen, you need food to live, you know, but that's not enough for you. You need spiritual food in the same way. How, how often this last week did you forget about your dinner? Now, I'm sure there are somebody, somebody in this room that actually did uh, forget about dinner. But most of you, <laughs> most of you didn't forget about dinner this week. Most of you, you know what? It's pretty important to us. Why? Because we want to nourish our bodies. We want to eat good food uh, so that we're nourished and so that we're strong and that we're healthy and so on. But what about spiritually? How many meals have you skipped spiritually this week? How many times have you missed something that you needed uh, to be at? Uh, Listen to a podcast this week. And they were saying on the podcast that uh, in times past, people counted the number of times they were in church uh, per week. Might say a three or four services a week. <laughs> so was that three, three or four services? Or was that three services a week, or was that th- four services a week, or maybe two services a week? He said, "But in modern day, what's happening is people are counting the number of services they go to by the month." And you know what? I understand it. That's exactly what's happened. COVID has thrown a loop, thrown the spanner in the works. And um, what we're doing is we're actually spending a lot less time uh, in church than we should do. You know, the net result, they did a, did a survey of American evangelicals, right? And um, 60% of evangelicals, and evangelicals would be those people who more or less claim to be born again, right? Uh, and those, those people who claim, uh, to be born again on their way to heaven. Right? So it's broad. It's much broader than we would be. It's pretty broad. But uh, you know, it's, it's a big group. 60% of them weren't sure whether the spirit of God was a force or a being. Now, you say, well, big deal. It is a big deal. It's a real big deal. I can't relate to a force. I can't relate to some force out there, but he, if he's just a force for good in the world, he's, he's a being. He's, he's the third person of the Trinity. He's as fully God as Jesus or the Father is. And, and they, they went on with a whole list of things. But here's, here's the point I want to make. If you're not spending time soaking in the word, drawing near to God, letting the word of God seep into you, the, the reality is you won't even know what you don't believe. That's a dreadful thought. And I think Christianity is in trouble because of that, because unless we're soaking it in, unless we're taking it in and letting God speak to us, what happens is we end up not knowing. I'm very concerned about our children, really concerned about our children, because our children don't have the volume of truth going into them to actually help them, so that they're awash in a world that, that has, has a completely different view of everything. We need to do something. We need, we need to help. And by the way, parents, <clears throat> ultimately, the responsibility is yours. You've got to teach your kids about God. You know? <clears throat> um, I, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says that you're supposed to teach them in the morning when they get up, and you're supposed to teach them at lunchtime. You're supposed to teach them when they sit down. You're supposed to teach them when they go to bed. You're supposed to be teaching your children about God. You're supposed to be filling them with the reality of God. The world is filling them with the reality of not God. You're supposed to be filling them with the reality of God, teaching them constantly, bringing God into everything. Yes, you live in the world. You you know, uh, there's all kinds of things that go on, but you're the the person that brings God into the picture that helps them to see God is involved in all of it. You're the person that opens the Bible and teaches them truth from the Bible. You're responsible for making sure they know the basics. And And I fear that a generation of kids raised in Christian homes don't know the basics. They, they, they don't know those basic truths. You know, <clears throat> we need to address that. We need to deal with that. We need to, 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 to work with that. that that's, that's important. Because what's happening is, if we're drifting, we're not spending as much time in church, and we're not spending as much time in the Word, and we're not spending as much time really dealing with God, what effect is that going to have on our kids? What effect is that going to have on the people around us? Oh, listen, we need, to, we need to come back to the place where we're making the one thing that is needful uh, the most important thing of all. You can't abide in Christ if you don't spend time with him. Abiding means dwelling with. Abiding means being uh, with him. The, the idea of abiding in John chapter 15 is that you're spending time with him all the time, that as you go about your business, that whatever you're doing, that Jesus is there, that he is part of it. You see, Jesus had a devotional life that people could see. Now, listen, it's none of my business. It's between you and God. What's your devotional life like? What's the heart of your life, your relationship with God like? If that's not right, you need to address it. You're not going to address it for your kids or for anybody else unless you address it for you. You've got to address that issue, the idea of your devotional life. But then, <clears throat> Next point is Judas betrays Jesus, but Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, the betrayal was wicked and awful because he could have done it and said, uh, here he is, God sees him, but he didn't. He said, look, the guy I kiss, he's the one. Now, why did he need to identify Jesus anyway? Well, remember, you're not in the days of photographs and you're not in the days of celebrities and so on. So some of the guards might have known Jesus. He, he, he was pretty ordinary looking, by the way. You know, he wasn't somebody with a halo around his head that just kind of glowed when you looked at him. He wasn't like that. Uh, his, his glory was veiled in human flesh so that he, he looked just like uh, an ordinary person. So some of these guards would not have known him. They needed him identified. But they needed him identified in a place where they could take him without... <clears throat> The, 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 the multitude outside, the, the people seeing it, because the people loved him. And so they needed to take him, and they needed someone to identify him. So that's what Judas did, did, and he chose to do it with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. How could he? I mean, look, I get him walking away, disillusioned walking away. People walk away all the time. I, I understand that. I don't like it, but I, but I understand. How could you walk away from Jesus? But, but it, it happens. Right? But, but why would you sell him out to his enemies? Why would you do that? Why would you actually take and and, and, and sell him to his enemies? Remember we looked at this, we looked at the fact that he must have been bitter. He'd been promised a throne. He's, he saw money. He saw a position. He saw a place. And he, he was one of those guys. He's looking at the situation. Hey, it ain't going very well. I don't see that throne coming up. I don't see any army that's going to give me a throne. I don't see things going my way uh, in this situation at all. And the other thing we, we noticed about him is that he loved money. He carried the bag. And John said <clears throat> he was a thief. Remember the, when Mary came and she poured the, the ointment down on the ointment that was like 35,000 euros worth uh, when, when she poured that um, ointment over him, Judas was furious, and that's just a couple of days ago now, to put in time frame. He was, he was furious about uh, that, and he, and he said it should have been sold and given to the poor, and, and John said that wasn't what he meant at all. He just, he, he just wanted, he carried the bag, and he was, he was uh, taking money out of the bag. Uh, it was his money, and so he was, he was furious about that, but whatever happened for him, he, he didn't just become disaffected with Jesus. He turned bitter against Jesus, and he hardened his heart. And you know, when you harden your heart, you can do anything wicked and make it okay. Listen, don't think you're above it. When you harden your heart, you can do anything wicked and make it okay. Jesus said about divorce, he said this, because <clears throat> uh, the Pharisees, he, he said there was no divorce, and, and the Pharisees said, well, well, hang on a minute, Moses gave us divorce, and Jesus said this, he says, Moses gave you that for the hardness of your heart. Right? In other words, hardness of heart is the root cause of divorce. Somebody has to harden their heart for there to be a divorce. Listen, <clears throat> marriage is not a perfect institution, because you know what, the people in marriage are not perfect. But you know what happens when you harden your heart? You can do anything in a relationship. You you can just do anything. Don't let your heart grow hard. Don't let your heart grow hard. Bitterness makes your heart hard. And you say, but hang on, they've done me wrong. Somebody's done me wrong. They've hurt me. They've hurt me very badly. I, I, I know. And I know, humanly speaking, that's hard for us to deal with. That's hard for us to live with when somebody does us wrong. When a great wrong has been done in our lives, and the pain continues on in our lives because of the wrong that somebody has done. But you can't harden your heart. You see, Judas has hardened his heart, and he can go and sell Jesus out with a kiss. You know, rabbi, rabbi. And he goes and kisses him on the cheek. And by the way, it's, it's, it's not just kind of a, uh, you know, a light kiss. It's the kiss of a friend. You know? And you, you wonder, what was going on in his heart when he actually did that? Well, his heart was hard. His conscience was seared. He could do anything now. And you and I could do the same. When we harden our hearts, what we do is we cut it off. <clears throat> it goes dark in there. And we can get to the place where we can do anything, where we can do things that we never imagined uh, were possible for us to do. Don't harden your heart. Don't let your heart come to the place uh, where it's hardened. Um, um, Bitterness will make your heart hard. Second thing I want you to see, though, is from John. By the way, each of the Gospels tells you different little facets. Uh, Mark records the man who was taken and fled naked. right? And you scratch your head and you say, what's that all about? The answer is, nobody really knows. But God put it in there for a reason. But nobody really knows. Some, su- some suggest it's Mark that he put himself in uh, as a cameo into it, that it was, maybe it was his garden that Jesus was, <clears throat> was meeting in because Mark wasn't one of the disciples. Uh, <clears throat> <you> know, <clears throat> but that's in there for us. Uh, Luke records the sweat being, as it were, great drops of blood. Well, Luke was a doctor, so he's talking a lot of medical terms. And when, when, Jesus is, when Jesus is sweating, it's, there's blood and there's a condition uh, that actually will do that. But John records this. Then answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said unto him, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. So what happens is they come and they, they, he says, who who are you looking for? jesus of nazareth and he says i am he now remember you know that that, that, that when he says i am that's the name of god that he's using and nobody again knows exactly what happened here but when he says i am he they all fell down they all fell backwards i mean it's pretty impressive but it's nothing by comparison to the power that he had it's nothing by comparison you see jesus had an incredible way of speaking of humility and weakness and glory being there at the same time jesus was born as a humble baby yet heralded by angels he was laid in a manger yet announced by a star he submitted to baptism then heard a divine voice of approval he slept when he was exhausted but woke to calm the storm Jesus wept at a grave and then called the dead to life. He submits to arresting troops and then declares, declares his majesty and knocks them over. Jesus died on a cross, uh, but in it he overcame sin and death and Satan. And what you've got is you've got this amazing mixture of God and man, and it's almost as though sometimes the power of God just seeps out. Sometimes uh, <laughs> you know it can't be contained, and that's one of those times. Uh, <clears throat> But this moment where uh, Judas betrays him is the crowning moment of wickedness, of awfulness. This man, Judas, has seared his conscience and he betrays his master, not with a shout, not with a blow, not with a stab, but with a kiss. And before you judge him too harshly, understand that anything that is in anybody's heart can be in your heart too. You can turn bitter against God. You could harden your heart. And you could say things that you can't imagine about God. Don't harden your heart. Don't, don't, don't let your heart get hardened in the small ways, and then it gets bigger. Don't let that happen. Don't harden your heart against God. And then Peter reacts with a sword. Uh, when they which were about him saw what would follow they said unto him lord shall we smite with the sword and one of them smote off the servant <coughs> smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear and jesus answered and said suffer ye thus far and he touched his ear and healed him now we know from john this is peter uh, right and they ask a question they say Sh- shall we shall we um, <coughs> uh, will we defend ourselves will we smite with the sword before jesus answers Peter has drawn his sword and taken a swipe. Now, he's not a very good aim. You don't try and chop somebody's ear off with a sword. Uh, What he was doing is he was intending to split the man's skull uh, and kill him. And here's Peter. Peter is willing to go up against a small army with one sword. Now, just a few minutes before, he's been asleep when he should have been praying. But now he's all fired up, and he's ready to go to war, and he's ready to do, he's ready to make things happen. And um, Jesus says... Listen, in Matthew, he says, put up your sword, Peter. Don't you know that I could call on the Father and he would send me 12 legions of angels? That's about 36,000 angels that were ready to be there any moment Jesus called out for them. And um, Peter is thinking, i got to defend him. How often do we do that, by the way? You see, here's what Peter did. Peter just made a mess that Jesus had to clean up. You know, he strikes the guy, cuts off his ear, uh, in his haste, in his, in his vigor, uh, <laughs> he cuts off his ear, and he just makes a mess that Jesus has to clean up. I wonder how often have I done that? How often have I done something in, in my haste because I wanted it sorted? And what, ha- what ends up happening is that it's, I just make a mess. Now, listen... God is very gracious to us, isn't he? God is very gracious to us. I mean, if God were to hold us to account for everything wrong we do, none of us would survive a week. But you know what? He's very gracious. And like with Peter, he picks up the ear and puts it back on. He fixes the mess for Peter. But why do we make a mess in our lives? Why do we create problems? Because, we don't wait on God. You see, Peter slept when he was praying. And he fought when he should have been standing still. And the two are connected. You know, if, if we're not praying, what happens is we're, we're not in the right place. And, and um, you know, things happen that, that shouldn't happen if we're not walking with God. Peter, Peter was supposed to be walking with God. You see, I think there's always a contention between doing and abiding for us. Our humanity hates waiting on anything, including God. Uh, perhaps because we hate to feel helpless, and yet humility recognizes that we are indeed helpless. We can't do it. How often do you say that to God? It's so important that you say it. Not for God's sake, because He knows. It's important that you say it for your sake. I can't learn. I don't have it in me. I'm sure Jay had to say that this morning, or I can't. <laughs> Right? You know, When God calls on you to do something new that you haven't done before, that's what, that's what puts you to the place where you say, I can't do this. You know, our humility helps us to understand that we can't do it. But what do we do? Very often we'll do something, anything, rather than sit there and wait on God and let God have his way in the situation. <clears throat> you see, with his sword, Peter accomplished nothing. He just made a mess. When the spirit fills him after Pentecost, instead of cutting people down, uh, he's going to speak forth truth and thousands are going to get saved. And you know, there's there's a lesson in there for us. We'd much sooner do than pray. We'd much sooner be about something than wait on God. We'd much sooner step out there and be the man or be the woman. And God says, listen, just wait on me. I've got an infinitely better plan uh, than you have. Uh, maybe you're about to do something that God doesn't want you doing because you can't wait anymore. You want it to happen, and you want it to happen now. You want to you, you do it. You want it to happen now. You, you, you can't wait. Listen, wait on God. He's got a better plan than you have. And, you know, <clears throat> listen, God loves us, and he, he does help us with our messes. But doesn't he leave a residue sometimes? Do you think maybe that Peter was fearful later on that night because he just chopped a guy's ear off? Maybe that guy sees me and, you know, he's going to want me arrested. Do you think the enemy kind of played on Peter's foolishness later on that evening? I think he did. And you see, I think what happens is that when we're rash and when we do things without God being involved in it because we have to do something and we make a mess, even though God will help you, don't let the enemy tell you that God doesn't love you because you made a mess. God loves you. He'll he'll take you back. But I'll tell you what, uh, there's a knock-on effect for us. There always is. There's that knock-on effect. And I think what Peter's going through uh, is just that. Then Jesus points out the hypocrisy uh, of the chief priests and the captains. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains uh, of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And and he was in the temple dialoguing with them the day before. They they were throwing questions at him, and he was answering their questions and and dealing with them. And he said, you could have arrested me then. You, 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 could have, you could have taken me at that point, but you didn't know why, why didn't they? Because they didn't want to look bad in front of the people. They, they didn't want to get a reaction from the people. <clears throat> and so instead, what they do, they come illegally at night to arrest him, having paid a man to identify him. <clears throat> they come illegally uh, and, uh, and they're willing to, to, to arrest him. They're willing to take him. If their charges were legitimate, they, they could have done it. They, they, they could have taken him at any time in the temple, but their charges were not legitimate, and they knew it. They knew there was nothing legitimate about what they were to do. They, they end up crucifying him, and the only evidence they have against him is the fact that he says, yeah, I am the Son of God. By the way, when people tell you they don't believe that Jesus was fully God, you need to understand this. He was crucified because he said he was God. That, that's why he was crucified. He wasn't cru- there was no other reason to crucify him. He was crucified because he said he was God. And you, you, you need to have that settled in your mind. Don't let, don't let any of these cults come in and, and shake your, your view of who Jesus was. Take scripture and twist it and play with it and so on. No, no he was crucified because he said he was the son of God. And they knew what he was saying. They knew what he was saying. That, that's why they crucified him. But they could have taken him. They could have charged him at any time, but they knew... Their charges weren't legitimate. They were just completely hypocritical about it. And Jesus points it out to them. Now, he's going to go along with it because he has decided that he's going to sacrifice himself for our sins. But he's not going to let them think there's anything just or good or righteous about this because there was absolutely nothing good or just or righteous, or, or righteous about it. Let me, let me give you a couple of points as we close, right? <clears throat> ask you a couple of questions, rather, right? Jesus was known for his devotional life. Uh, Judas knew where to find him. How is your devotional life? One thing is needful. And I know you're going to say to me, Pastor, you have no idea how busy I am. You have no idea how much I have going on in my life. Listen, I get it. But Jesus said one thing is needful. And you see, the reality of our lives is this. We do what's most important to us. You go to work because that's important. Because you've got to make money and you've got to make a living. That's, and listen, no, I'm not saying it's not, but it's not the most important thing. You eat because that's important to you. You find time to sleep because that's important to you. You find time for entertainment because that's important to you. But very often what's happening is your life is dwindling away. And you're not doing the one thing that's most important. You're not doing the one thing that is needful. And again, the last thing I want to do is just produce guilt in you. What's the point of guilt? But you know what? There's a discipline that needs to be developed here in your life. If you're not in that place where you're daily having time with God, you need to develop that discipline. You're going to find it's going to be the most helpful thing you do. By the way... If you do, you'll find you have more time to do the other things that you need to do not less. Trust me on that. <clears throat> you know, even the world understands that taking time apart for you and meditation actually is hugely beneficial in the rest of your life. And you know what? If you take that time to spend with God and just carve it out and develop a habit so that, you know, if if, if you miss a day, you feel, "Ah, oh, I missed it." Just develop the discipline of spending time with God. Nobody can force it on you. Nobody can make you do it. But if you don't abide, you won't bear fruit. So Jesus, Judas knew where to find Jesus. How about prayer? Would would you sooner work than pray? Okay, how many messes are you getting into then? Isn't that true? We just go for it and make something happen and you know, something, anything, rather than sit still. Um, uh, would you sooner work than pray? What about hypocrisy? I mean, you show up on a Sunday morning, and uh, you sing, and you worship the song, and you worship the Lord, but, uh, but on Monday, you just want to be one of the crowd. Uh, and no one knows that you love Jesus. No one knows that Jesus is the center of it all for you. Listen, that's hypocrisy. What kind of a love is that? Can, can he really be God to us on a Sunday morning and not the rest of the week? Jesus said this in Luke 6, 6. He said, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You know, if Jesus is not Lord of all in your life. He's really not Lord at all. Isn't that true? If he's not Lord of all, if you've got areas of your life that are shut off from him and, you know, you don't bring him into that and that's not about religion and so on, then, then he's not really Lord of, at all. And he wants to be Lord of your life. You see, what you've got is you've got this person of the Trinity who's paid the price for your sin and who wants to come in and dwell in your life and and dwell with you and and live his life through you, a much better life than you can. But because he's given you a free will, you, you can do what you like to do. You have to choose that. You have to choose to walk with him. And when you choose to walk with him, he's there. And he's real. And he's the comforter. and He'll help you. and He'll counsel you. and He'll help you through. And you know what? You're missing out when you compartmentalize him into Sundays or uh, <coughs> special times of the day or the week. Listen, he wants to walk with you all through the week. You need to let him in. Maybe this morning <coughs> you've never come in come to the place where you've trusted him as your savior you know he didn't have to die for you there was nothing that he had to do he would still have been god he would still have been righteous he could just have let you pay for your own sin but he didn't he came and hung on a cross to pay the price for your sin now think with me If Jesus came and hung on a cross to pay the price for your sin, that has to be important. That has to be something that you can't just kind of ignore. Something you just can't say, okay, well, you know what, maybe someday. If Jesus came and hung on a cross to pay the price for your sins, you need to respond to him. Listen, you've got a free will. You can say, no thanks. I don't want it. And then you pay for your own sin. But I think a much wiser decision is for you to say, Lord, I want this. I want all I can have from you. I I want salvation. And cry out to him. And when you do, he's there. He will come. He's a great savior. He does the saving. We don't do the saving. When you turn from your sin and turn to him, listen, he will save you you know what it doesn't happen just because you go to church it happens because you come to a place in your life where you decide, i need this and you trust him that's that's what saved you you coming to that place where you depend upon him to do it that's a biblical faith won't you do that if you haven't done that let's stand for prayer and <clears throat> i'm going to pray and then i'm going to give you an opportunity to talk to god